0: When our ancestors came to this country, and some of them passed really through Ellis Island and before Ellis Island, Castle Garden, and saw the Statue of Liberty, they asked the question, is America going to be different? Is it going to be better for us here than it was in the old home, the Altaheim, to use the old language? And the answer, of course, has always been yes. America has been not a good place for the Jews, but a wonderful place for the Jews. Now there are a number of reasons for this. Reason number one is that our country had the great good fortune to be born in the 18th century, not the 17th and not the 19th century. For those of you that remember your history classes in college or high school, you know that the 18th century was the age of the Enlightenment and the Enlightenment with its belief that religion was a private matter between the individual and God, that there should be a separation between church and state, that no religion should be preferred over another, all of that redounded to the advantage of our people. And then, of course, there were other things. There is an old song that some of your children and grandchildren may sing. I used to sing it, but never in a million years will you hear me sing it now. But the refrain was, it's a good song. The land was sweet and good, and we did what we could. What that meant was that the country was really blessed by incredible size and incredible acres of arable land. That is, the country was a rich country. Now, no insult intended. There is no insult intended here. Essentially, the frontier thesis is correct. If you couldn't make it in the Northeast, you went out to the Ohio Valley. If you couldn't make it in the Ohio Valley, you went out to further parts of the Midwest and the Southwest. And then, of course, there was always the golden land of California. There was never that ferocious competition um, between Jews and Gentiles for land, for university placement. It just didn't exist in the United States. In addition to that, there were two other factors. One is there were only probably 3,000 Jews in the United States, or in the 13 colonies, in 1776. Fortunately, most of them made the right choice. They linked themselves with George Washington and the revolutionary movement, which meant that when the Revolutionary War was over, no one could say to the Jews, you stabbed us in the back, you betrayed us, you didn't work for us. By and large, most of those 3,000 American Jews lined up with George Washington. And finally, and I say this, this I say with burning sorrow. This is a wonderful country, and our compatriots are really wonderful people. But there is an American mishigas, and the American Michigas is race. When our compatriots get ugly, they get ugly usually on the basis of race, which meant, if I could put this as succinctly as possible, is that our people, by virtue of being white, were sheltered by living under a Latino, Asian, and black umbrella. When the wrath of our people, that is, our compatriots, our non-Jewish Americans, when they got ugly, their wrath and their ire descended upon those groups and not ourselves. That's one of the reasons, for example, as to why the Jewish community in the antebellum South led a relatively privileged position. Because white southerners, feeling besieged by blacks, Embraced people that were of a different religion but were of the same color. In short, America was a good place. So good, in fact, that although there was anti Semitism in America, by the early years of the 19th century, the problem for Jews in terms of Jewish survival was not anti Semitism, it was a paucity or a lack of Jews. There just weren't that many Jews in the new United States, and one could make a case that had there not come a fairly large influx, that is, the American Jewish community might conceivably have disappeared. After all, this was a voluntaristic Jewish community. No ghetto walls, no pogroms, no government anti-Semitism, and no Kehillah. No Jewish community organization that forced its role and its mores upon the Jewish community. In America, you could do whatever you want, and many Jewish Americans were, in fact, doing just that. Living on the frontier, living among large numbers of Jews, there was going to be a problem. That is, many Jews would simply disappear. But, of course, history is fluid. It's never stagnant. And what's going to happen, for a variety of reasons that we will not get into here, but perhaps if you take the course we will, emigration and immigration is a function of push and pull. Something pushes people out, and something pulls people in. And what I'm referring to is between 1820 and 1860, a number of developments occurred in Germanic Europe. The failure, for example, of the 1848 revolution, the restoration of reactionary governments, economic changes, and of course, the gold rush in California. All of this led probably to about 160,000 German Jews coming to the United States, and they will begin the creation of that critical mass so essential for Jewish survival. I am sure you're familiar with most of these stories, The most glorious of them are, of course, the stories that talk about Jewish peddlers that peddled everywhere. The most successful of them built stores, and then the most successful of them moved into other areas, including the development of the department stores. The best example that I can give of you is of the two Katz brothers that roamed through western Massachusetts and, having made a fair amount of money, decided to strike for Boston. But sensing the nature of Boston and sensing the nature of American life, the Katz brothers changed their name to Filene, and that's where the Filene department stores have their origin. In short, what I'm trying to tell you is those German Jews were doing quite well. Another famous group, Hart, Schaffner, and Marx, these are the people that will be titans within the textile industry. The Jews were doing very, very well. They will do well during the Civil War, although a number of Jews are going to be killed and Jewish communities are going to be divided. as families will be divided. I don't know how many of you have ever made it to Vicksburg. Every American should go to Gettysburg and go to Vicksburg. When you get to Vicksburg, if you have a good tour guide, the tour guide will tell you that for several hours each week, there was a no man's land in Vicksburg, where the losses were tremendous. And for several hours each week, the fighting would stop. So the brothers on each side could come and meet with each other. The Civil War divided American Jews as it divided Americans. Now, this is a Jewish community that by 1881 numbers approximately 250,000 Jews. The Jewish community is here to stay. And then comes the great shock. Again, emigration and immigration are a function of push and pull. In 1881, an old Russian word from the medieval period, which had probably never been used in the United States by Jews or by Gentiles, now becomes a common word, a word that you are all familiar with. The Russian word is pogrom. In English, that's P-O-G-R-O-M. A pogrom is a riot or a mutiny. Beginning in 1881, it will become synonymous with attacks upon Jews. And in Russia, There's going to be a debate. The Russian word is kuda. Where do we go? Do we stay in Russia or in Russian the expression is America ili Palestina? Do we go to America or do we go to Palestine? Russian Jewish intellectuals said go to Palestine. But 1,500,000 Russian Jews voted with their feet for the United States of America, and a number of them went to other places. Listen to these figures. Between 1830 and 1880, the total number of Jews that emigrated from the Russian Empire was approximately 40,000. Between 1881 and 1914, close to 1,500,000 Jews would come to the United States. I suspect that many of you who are sitting in front of me probably can trace your antecedents to this time. I also suspect that there are probably very few of you who can trace your American antecedents back before the year 1881. The overwhelming majority of American Jews today are descended from East European Jewry, and the bulk of those East European Jews came between 1881 and 1914 the response of the German-Jewish community here was not particularly enthusiastic. That is an understatement. (laughs) Not particularly enthusiastic about the arrival of the, what in German, literally it means something. It has a meaning, but it has a pejorative ring to it. That is the German-Jewish expression, both in Germany and here, for the people from Eastern Europe are, They are Ostjuden, they are Eastern Jews, and the connotation is they smell from garlic, they're religious fanatics, or they stand on the left. And what's going to happen is that the American Jewish press, which is virtually German-Jewish in origin and German-Jewish editorialized, is going to say some very, very harsh things. One German-Jewish newspaper in this country will say, what we need from Polish Jews is a little bit less Polish and a lot more Polish. Another German-Jewish newspaper will say, it is a pity that these Jews who are coming from Eastern Europe to our country really haven't spent a year in Germany where the filth of barbarism could be washed off of them. So there is a great deal of hostility here, and in one large reformed temple in New York City, composed of German Jews, and which this temple conducted the minutes of its executive committee meetings in German down to the end of the 19th century, they used a phrase to describe the Jews coming from Eastern Europe. You don't have to know a single word of German or a single word of Yiddish. When you hear the phrase, you know it just doesn't sound good. That is the people in that temple referred to the Jews from Eastern Europe as quote a schmutzige leute, <laughs> of filthy and dirty people. And the initial response of the German Jewish leadership in this country is to tell Jewish communal organizations in France and Germany, keep them where you are. Don't send them to us. But those German Jews here had a heart. It wasn't a heart of stone. And given the fact that the East European Jews were coming here in such large numbers, no matter what the German Jews had to say, the German Jewish leadership, the balabatum of the German Jewish community, designed a strategy to minimize, let us say, the dislocations And their great fear was, and you got to have some rachmonists for them. These German Jews still had families in Germany. And they knew about the rising anti-Semitism in the German lands. After all, right around 1870, before 1881, when the German Jews are coming, an expression is coined in Germany that becomes so famous that it is used at every Nazi party rally. So much so, that if people think it is Hitler who coined the expression, it is not. It's an expression from the 1870s. In German it is, Die Juden sind unser Unglück. The Jews are our misfortune. And the German Jewish leadership here was petrified that you bring these East European Jews with their beards smelling from garlic, their black caftans, it will generate anti-Semitism. And so they designed a strategy, a multifold strategy. Strategy number one, turn them into farmers. Make them productive citizens so no one can turn call them parasites. And so a number of farming communities were established. The only one that really lasted and lasts down to the present, because it was, let us say, replenished by Holocaust survivors, was one in Vineland, New Jersey, in southern New Jersey. All of the others have disappeared. So, if you can't turn them into farmers, at least disperse them. And so, hence was born the Galveston Plan. Send them in through the Texas port of Galveston, and in fact, they will not conglomerate in the cities. That's going to fail, too. The overwhelming majority of those immigrants are going to so really settle in the Northeast initially, particularly in New York cities. And then, of course, there was a fallback strategy. If you can't turn them into farmers and you cannot disperse them, at least make them respectable Jews. And that is to make them members of reform congregations. Now, the fact of the matter is, those East European Jews who came at the end of the 19th and the early 20th century were not all religious people. It is a myth that our ancestors were very religious. But they did feel as many Israelis feel. One of the oldest Israeli jokes is not a joke or a statement is the synagogue that I do not belong to, is orthodox. That is, in the eyes of the East European Jews, the only legitimate form of Judaism was orthodoxy, even if they didn't go, which meant, of course, that this strategy was going to fail. That's, incidentally, one of the reasons why it was reformed Jews of German extraction, like like Jacob Schiff, that funded the creation of the Jewish Theological Seminary. It's reformed Jews that fund the, semita- the seminary. And they do it because they've given up the ghost on reformed Judaism. Maybe conservative Judaism will be more palatable to the American people. They certainly should not be left to the Orthodox community. So that's going to fail. The children of those immigrants and the grandchildren of those immigrants they will enter the reform movement, but not that immigrant generation. So you can't disperse them, you can't turn them into farmers, you can't turn them into reform Jews, and then something that enjoys initial success, in Orange County, I hear, it may continue to enjoy continued success, but nowhere else. And that is, you can't turn them into farmers, you can't make them reform Jews, you can't make them dispersed. you can't disperse them, then at least make them respectable Americans. They should vote for the Republican Party. (laughs) Now that, that will enjoy some success. And the reason for that is that democratic machines based on Italian and Irish ethnic communities gave favorable treatment to those groups. Sometimes the Jews were left out and there was a Jewish love affair with Abraham Lincoln. Even though they came after the Civil War, after Lincoln's death, the fact that he had freed the slaves made some Jews responsive to him. So those East European Jews are going to come, and what is most significant, in contrast to other groups, those East European Jews come to stay. The maximum number of Jews who return to the countries from which they came will never exceed 3 to 4% a year. That was a different pattern for Hungarians, for Czechs, and for Slovaks. Many of them would come to our country to make enough money to buy some land in the old country. For example, I don't know if you remember him, one of the more, this is not an oxymoron, one of the more decent communist leaders, was the leader of the Czechoslovakian Communist Party, Alexander Dubček. Dubček and his father came to the United States. They came to make money so they could buy some land in Bohemia and in Moravia. The Jewish pattern was to stay. How do we know besides the statistics? 55% of all of those Jews who come are women and children under the age of 16. If you bring your women and your children, You are coming to stay. It also means the Jews are going to have certain advantages. The country is taking off economically. Many Jews had experience with capital. They were not rich. They were dirt poor. But some of them were moneylenders. Some of them sold alcohol. Some of them led a marginal economic existence. But they had experience with a capitalist society. And our country is taking off economically. In addition to that, they know a number of languages. And that is going to mean most of them, the men, not the women. In the studies that we have, it does indicate that when you compare Jewish male immigrants with Gentile male immigrants, the literacy rates among Jewish males are higher. But when you compare literacy rates among Jewish women with Gentile women, the figures are they are somewhat lower. That's a consequence of developments in Eastern Europe. So the Jews come, and they do quite well. They do fairly well. By 1920, there are close to 4 million Jews living in the United States, and they are the bourgeois community par excellence. But there are problems along the way. Never romanticize the Lower East Side of Manhattan. People starve to death and one of the the two great problems, confronting Jews. How do we know all of this? We know it from the memoir literature and if you have time, read a book that was published about 25 years ago. The book was an edited book of letters that were sent into the leading Yiddish newspaper of the time, the Fovets, the Jewish Daily Forward, which had as its legendary editor, Abraham Kahan. And Abraham Kahan was the dear Abby and dear Anne of his time. Not only did he edit the paper, not only did he set the political line of the paper, he wrote a column, he had a column, which in Yiddish it was called brief* a bundle of letters. Letters would be sent to him by Jews, immigrant Jews, telling him their problems, and in fact he would write answers to them. You may not agree with all of his answers, but the letters give us an idea of some of the problems. The two major problems, believe it or not, one, abandonment by Jewish husbands of their families. Life was hard, and men really moved away. I mean, I'm old enough to remember my parents telling me, and some of you may have heard the same type of story, so-and-so told his wife he was going to go to the store to get a pack of cigarettes, and he never came back. Abandonment was a problem. A worse problem, it lasted a generation, but everybody knew that it existed. It was a Jewish gesheft, as Jewish in some ways as kreplach and chicken soup. It was the problem of prostitution. White slavery and prostitution were Jewish businesses. And it is estimated that a very large percentage of the women put in prison for prostitution in New York State were women of Jewish extraction. Life is hard, and in fact, an immigrant population, be it in Israel, for Russian Jewish women, and for those of you, again, they may not tell you this, in Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo, and in Rio de Janeiro, the prostitution among Jews was absolutely tremendous. So great was prostitution in Buenos Aires, there were two separate Jewish communities. one for the pimps, the brothel owners, the madams, and the prostitutes, which had their own cemeteries, their own synagogues, their own Jewish community centers, and then for the community, the Jews in the community that were not affiliated with the business of prostitution. It was a one-generation phenomenon. Also, there was racketeering, gambling, and all types of, let us say, exploitation that was taking place. It lasted, again, for a generation, and then as conditions got better and Jews integrated into American society, it, to all intents and purposes, disappeared. The 20s were a good time for Americans. They were a good time for Jewish Americans as well. And then the bad times came. The bad times came with the Depression. And I must say to you, You can draw an analogy here. This is a very difficult time for Jewish communal organizations. Money is tight. You are very fortunate because you happen to have, he'll be embarrassed by my telling you this, let's say a Renaissance genius in Ari. He manages to put this stuff all together. I must tell you, even without Bernie Madoff, even without that, jewish charities are up against the wall because of the bad economic situation and that was the situation in the 1930s and as the night follows the day whether it is in europe or the united states you can bet your last buck that the anti-semites will come out of the woodwork and use anti-semitism as a political weapon and that occurs in the 1920s and the 1930s. The difference between our country and Europe is they are never able to cross the line. They generate support, but not massive support, and no leading American governmental official supports the anti-Semitism. But in the 20s and in the 1930s, it is the only time in the history of our people, in the history of this country, when men and women, particularly men of influence and affluence, endorse anti-Semitism. If you bought a Ford in the 1920s and you drove it off the lot and you opened up the dashboard, the chances were you would have a copy of Henry Ford's Dearborn Independent and in that, that's what a weekly newspaper that he bought, there would be an article called The International Jew in which Henry Ford Americanized that most famous and insidious of anti-Semitic documents known as the Protocols or the Elders of Zion that was born in the bowels of the Okhrana, that Tsar's secret police. He Americanizes it. In the 1930s, America's and with the closer we get to the war, America's greatest hero of the 20th century, up to the Second World War, blonde blue-eyed, handsome, Charles Lindbergh hated our guts. Lindbergh was more sophisticated than Henry Ford, but Charles Lindbergh always spoke about a group of people that were more interested in their co-religionists in Europe than they were in the well-being of the United States of America. In the Reader's Digest, in a series of speeches in Des Moines in 1941, he would hammer at us. Never directly at the Jews, but everybody knew the code. And remember, not only did Lindbergh fly across the Atlantic, he elicited the tremendous sympathy of large numbers of Americans because his firstborn child had been kidnapped and murdered. The most famous kidnap case in all of American history. And if this were not bad enough, we see at the end of the 1930s, actually in the middle of the 1930s, the emergence on the scene of the first radio cleric, the first important, in this case a Catholic priest, who every Sunday from 7 o'clock from the Church of the, Holy Fla- the Little Flower in Detroit spoke about the Jew deal, spoke about how the Jews were responsible for the Depression, the Jews were responsible for communism. This was Father Coughlin. So, in fact, the Jews find themselves in a very, very difficult position, not so much in the 1920s, although Ford is a problem, but in the 1930s. The Roosevelt administration does not support anti-Semitism, but for reasons that we will talk about in the course, the Roosevelt administration, which was beloved by Jews, what's the old joke between 33 and 45? The Jews live in three worlds. I'll use the Yiddish because that's the way it was used in the joke. The Jews live in Die Welt, this world. Some Jews think about Yenevelt, the world to come. But they're all in love with Roosevelt. <laughs> that is, Roosevelt would get probably somewhere between 88 and 100% of the Jewish vote in many, many precincts. In fact, to show you how popular Roosevelt was, in 1940... See, you're lucky you're not my students. You really are lucky. Because at this point, I would walk right down in the middle, and I would turn to a student and say, why was Roosevelt more vulnerable in 1940? Now, since we want to finish before Shavuos, I will answer my own question. The reason he was more vulnerable in 1940 is he was the first American president to run for a third term. And many Americans thought that was not right. Also running for re-election was the most prominent rabbi of the time, Rabbi Stephen Wise. He was running for the presidency of the American Jewish Congress. Believe it or not, it is not Roosevelt that asks Wise for a letter of endorsement. It's Wise that asks Roosevelt for a letter of endorsement. So popular is Roosevelt. Roosevelt, on the greatest issue, an issue of life and death for our people, will not open the gates. He's concerned about the Depression. He's concerned about the New Deal. He's concerned about all sorts of things, which means that many of our people who could have been saved by coming to the United States are not going to be able to come. When the war is over, a number of important things have already taken place. Excuse me. One of them is that somewhere between 500,000 and 600,000 Jewish men and women had served in the armed forces of the United States, some with great distinction. The war is, to use the elegant language of the historian, the war is a watershed, not only for us, but for African-Americans. The civil rights movement is inconceivable without the fact that one million black Americans served in the civil, uh, served in World War II. When they come back, they are simply, many of them, are simply not going to put up, forgive the crudeness of the language, with the crap that they have taken. To show you how bizarre it was in this country, thousands of German prisoners of war were put in POW camps in southern states. On Saturday night, For R&R, some of them were allowed to attend movie theaters in Mississippi. The same movie theaters that would not accept black soldiers in American military uniform. Bizarre. It was absolutely, when you think about it, it is absolutely bizarre. So these 500,000, 600,000 American Jews are going to come back. And they are not going to put up with a number of things, one of which is anti-Semitism. In addition to that, there's something else. When Life Magazine and Time and the newspapers begin to publish the pictures of Dachau and Buchenwald and Auschwitz, when there's coverage, coverage of the Nuremberg trials, who's going to stand up and talk about kikes and mockies and hebes? You look like a damn Nazi. You're spitting on the graves of our people, of our soldiers. The barriers begin to come down. The Jewish community is emboldened. The Jewish community becomes Zionized. Golda Meyerson, as she was then called, is sent by Ben-Gurion to raise $5 million from American Jews. She returns with $50 million. We Zionize ourselves, and then we Zionize American society. And Hollywood, that barometer, of American public opinion, which reflects American public opinion and shapes American public opinion, suddenly discovers that anti-Semitism is anti-American. I refer you to a film that I'm sure many of you are familiar with and then to another good film that you probably are not familiar with. The other film shows you the limits of Hollywood. The film that you should be familiar with is Gentleman's Agreement with Gregory Peck, Gregory Peck. Anti-Semitism is un-American. That's the message of that film. The other film is a film called Crossfire, with Robert Young. And the film begins in a bar in San Francisco, where a group of demobilized marines go to the bar, they see a civilian there, they strike up a conversation with him, they find that he is Jewish, And they say, what were you doing when we were getting our gullions shot off in the South Pacific? You were playing around with our women. That's what you were doing. And they kill him. They kill him. It turns out when Robert Young, the detective, comes in, they make an investigation. The man had been wounded at Iwo Jima. He never mentioned that. And that's that's why he was killed. You see the limits of Hollywood because this is taken from a short story. In the short story, the man who is killed at the bar is killed not because he is Jewish, but because he is a homosexual. Hollywood would not touch that for another 50 years. But anti Semitism was now simply not permissible. The residential covenants come tumbling down, and in fact, life gets better. This is the beginning of the golden age of American Jewry. Everything becomes open, or nearly everything becomes open. The Ivy League becomes open. The medical schools, which had the quotas, my school had a Jewish quota until 1965. So did St. Lawrence. So did Sarah Lawrence, not St. Lawrence, Sarah Lawrence. So did many, many schools. Those quotas are going to go by the wayside. It's a good time for the American Jewish community. If we are the bourgeois community, by 1920, by the middle of the 1960s, we are the professional community par excellence. American Jewry takes off. The 50C massive synagogue construction. It is the best time, probably, I would say, not only in the history of the American Jewish community, but probably in the entire history of the Jewish people. But we are Jews which means that there is a neurosis gene there. And so if life is so good, why in 1976 in an article in a Jewish magazine do some people say we're on the way out? Well, what are our problems in 2010? Well, we have a population problem. We really do. Do not be offended. Do not be offended here. We Jews do some things very well. In fact, some things we do better than anybody else. One thing that we do better than anybody else, nobody uses contraceptive devices as well as Jewish women. Nobody. Which means that we have virtual zero population growth. Which means that we are an aging community. And remember, there are no great reserves anymore. The Russian Jews have come for the most part, the Argentinian Jews have come, Israel takes some, we take some, but most of the Jews that were supposed to come, here's the irony of Zionism, not to go off on a tangent but a parenthesis, what's the great irony of Zionism? When Herzl and Sirkin and all of those guys, Ben-Gurion and uh, a whole bunch of them, when they spoke about Jews coming to Eretz Israel, they were talking about the European Jews. The irony is when they, they're not going to come because they've gone up the chimney or they're in mass graves. The Jews that those European Zionists never even thought about, the Jews of Yemen, the Jews of Iraq, the Jews of Syria, the Jews of Iran, the Jews of Morocco, they are the ones that are going to come in such large numbers. So there are no more reserves. Demography is a problem for us. In addition to that, I, am, I must tell you this now, I am the father now of two children, not three. I am the father of two children, only one is married. She is married to someone who is Jewish by sheer accident, by sheer accident. That means what I'm telling you is, so you'll never get a harangue against intermarriage from me. I will simply tell you the basic facts of life. Intermarriage is a problem for the community. We initially thought that it would not be such a problem because we initially thought that a very large number of Jews who intermarried would raise their children as Jews. The latest studies that we have indicate that the figure in intermarried families is that 28% of the children in intermarried families are raised as Jews. This is not a harangue. I'm not, it's not an argument against. I'm simply telling you a basic fact of life. There's also a problem of anti-Semitism in America, but it is not a major problem. Plato used to say, only the dead have seen the last of war. To paraphrase Plato, only dead Jews have seen the last of anti-Semitism. We will always confront it. The question is not whether it exists, but whether it exists in a magnitude large enough to impede our entrance into the American mainstream, and thank God that has not been the case for some of the reasons I have already given you. But it is a problem. Linked to that is an anti-Israeli or anti-Zionist sentiment which very often crosses the line into anti-Semitism. I will speak much in this month about Israel. Again, we are not vestal virgins, Israel, we're not caught up in Zionut. Israel has made mistakes. Israel is a country with blemishes. I will argue that by and large, it is a remarkable country that it's its achievements have just, again, outnumber all of its blemishes. But there are people, it is legitimate to criticize Israel. Should there be settlements? Should there be negotiations? What should be the treatment of Gaza? All of these illegitimate things. How do you know they're legitimate? Because half of Israel opposes the other half of Israel on this. So you know these are legitimate questions. When do people cross the line? When Israeli soldiers are compared to Nazis. That's crossing the line. When an Italian newspaper has a picture, a cartoon, of the baby Jesus in the manger, and standing over him is an Israeli soldier with a bayonet, And the baby Jesus says, you're coming to kill me again? That's anti-Semitism. When the Gaza Strip is compared to the Warsaw Ghetto, that's either anti-Semitism or sheer stupidity. But that is crossing the line. And on American university campuses, that sometimes presents a problem. So intermarriage is a problem. The... Anti-Semitism is a problem, demography is a problem, but you and I know what the greatest problem of them all is. Believe it or not, it was summed up by a rabbi in Vilna in 1812. Now, if you're really on your toes, and I was stepping out there, scaring the living daylights out of you. Now, here's a parenthesis. I will tell you, if you are teachers, what you were never taught. But in your gut, if you're honest, you'll know there's nothing like a little bit of intimidation to get a 20-point rise in the IQ. It lasts for about 30 seconds. 30 seconds! But in those 30 seconds, miracles can happen. In 1812, Napoleon marches with 600,000 men into the Russian Empire. This is his greatest mistake. And when his forces approach Vilna, One of the great rabbis in Vilna is asked by his congregants, whom do we support, Napoleon or the Tsar? Listen to the answer. If Napoleon wins, the ghetto walls come tumbling down. No more pogroms, no more anti-Jewish laws, and so on. We will be free like everybody else, and because of that, we will no longer be Jews. If the forces of the Tsar win, the ghetto walls remain, The anti-Jewish laws remain. There will be pogroms, but we will remain Jews. Therefore, I order you to support the Tsar. Nobody in his right mind wants to go back to that. But that rabbi has put put his finger on what is our basic problem. It's not anti-Semitism. It's not demography. It's not intermarriage. How do you survive as Jews in gloriously free America? That's the issue. How do we counter the fact that large numbers of young Jews, men and women, are opting out of the Jewish community. They're not converting. They're just opting out. Now look at me well. I am not the prophet from upstate New York. Believe me. I do not have a monopoly on the truth. Here is what I would suggest, and then we'll call it a night, and then I will ask you if there are any questions. All of the evidence that we have, indicates that the best bang for the buck with kids is a Jewish summer camp experience. It behooves every Jewish community to make sure that Jewish parents who want to send their kids, their young people, to a Jewish summer camp have the means to do so. Number two, there's nothing like going to Israel for an ethnic shot in the arm. Birthright is one of the great contributions and one of the great and successful creations of the American Jewish community. But make no mistake, make no mistake, you cannot build an American Jewish community on the basis of, let us say, substitutes, surrogates. You can't build it upon Israel because most American Jews remain here. And you can't build it on the Holocaust either and I am a professor of Holocaust history, I am telling you, study the Holocaust, learn the Holocaust. It is important, but don't think for a moment that you can make our young people Jewish by teaching them about the Holocaust. In fact, if it is not done well, you can get into real trouble. The kids are not stupid. And if all you hammer about is anti-Semitism, The kid doesn't have to have an IQ of 150 to ask you the question. If historically so many people have hated the Jews and it led to the Holocaust, then what is the sense of remaining Jewish? The only hope, and I am a fairly religious man, but I'm not a a member of an Orthodox congregation. I am telling you the only way to survive is through the synagogue. And I'm also telling you that Judaism is not a pediatric religion. Don't worry so much about your children and grandchildren. Worry about yourselves. Lead a Jewish life as you define it. It it is a disgrace. Or to put it another way, that's too harsh. That language is too harsh. It behooves, I'll put it in a positive sense. There are so many Jewish publications. If you stand on the left, you can read tikkun. If you are in the center, you can read moment. Here I'll make a confession to you. Don't hold it against me. Please don't hold it against me. Professor Burke subscribes to Commentary Magazine. In addition to the others, in addition to the others, the point here is never in the history of our people has there been such a plethora of Jewish publications. Who would have dreamt that Indiana University Press is probably one of the great publishers of Jewish material? The University of California Press publishes some of the best stuff on Judaica. Princeton University Press, Harvard University Press. So much is coming out. It behooves an American Jewish family to subscribe and to read. There is no success. There there, there can be no survival without this. And the synagogue is important. You know why it's important? Because bagel and lox will not do it. You can't make other generations of Jews out of bagel and lox. Nor will left-wing politics do it. Because so many Jews are moving into the center. And so many Jews have no experience of the trade union movement. Nor will the Yiddish language do it. Because for the most part, again, it is not done. It is not done, but most American Jews. What is significant about our community? Do you realize that the American Jewish community is probably the only large Jewish community in the history of our people that is essentially monolingual? That's important. Yiddish will not do it. What will do it is the synagogue and Jewish culture and Jewish learning. If I were in the synagogue now, and I was standing in front of the bema, do not be insulted what I'm saying. I speak to you as a man who is a fairly religious Jew, and a man who believes in Torah Sinai. I would say to you, you may think that in that Torah are bubamites. They're all, whatever they may be, fairy tales. They never took place. But what you should know... In Torah and Talmud is the genius of our people. This is what our people gave to the world. The first giant step was not taken in Athens and it wasn't taken in Rome. It was taken about 3,500 years ago in the Sinai Desert. This is what we have given. This is what we must transmit to future generations. Not telling them what to believe, but exposing them to the greatness to the brilliance, to the feelings, the emotional and intellectual depth of the Jewish religious tradition. If we do that, then I think, whether it's 50 years from now or 100 years from now, people can say, and there'll be more than one person and more than one mignon that will say it, I'm Yisroel Chai. The Jewish people are still alive. Thank you very much. All right, all right, thank you very much. Now, my friends, my students are petrified of me, absolutely (laughs) petrified. To lighten, it's not, I don't pride myself on that. It's my demeanor that that happens. So I'll tell you, to lighten up what is really a, a sobering moment. I teach a course on the Holocaust every spring. 200 students take it. I give a midterm at night. So the students are streaming into the building. And a young woman says to me, Professor Burke, you'll never believe what happened last night. I said, what happened? We're sitting in the girls' dormitory, and we're studying for your exam. And all of a sudden, a young woman comes, running through the halls, screaming, he's here, he's here, meaning I'm there, he's here and he's checking up to see whether we're studying for the midterm. (laughs) Now, Professor Burke is many things, but he's not a pervert. So I'm not stepping into a girl's dormitory, ever. What had happened was, a week before, I delivered a book review at the Schenectady County Library. They put it on the public access television. And this young woman, somebody was listening to the review. This young woman walked by, didn't look in, heard my voice and said, he's here. But you are not my students, at least at Union College, and certainly you are real people. You are not petrified of me. So are there any questions?
1: <laughs>
0: Am I the luckiest man in America? Am I in front of the most brilliant group of people that understand everything and do not have a single question? question. Yeah. quick one. Could you comment on the discrepancy between the uh, Federation study of 5 million Jews and the recent Brandeis one, which says there's 6 million Jews? The The question is, can I comment on the difference between two studies? One says 5 million, one says 6 million. First of all, I'm not a demographer. The second thing, it all depends on what questions you ask and how you count. (laughs) I am inclined to believe the higher number. In fact, I believe there is even a higher number than six million, but I, I'm, I'm not prepared. I mean, it's the questions that you ask that's really what it is, and it's the definitions that you use. Who's a Jew? So in all of these things, I would argue, and the, uh, I, I can't give you, a, I, I'm inclined to say that the larger figure is, an, uh, is, is higher, and is the more correct figure, and the other thing I would say is, There's a term that was used in a much earlier period of Jewish history. These were friends of the Jews. In the Roman period, there were people who would go to the synagogue. They were not Jews. They never converted to Judaism. But they felt Jewish, or they identified with the Jewish people. If you want a positive spin on intermarriage, the positive spin is... You've all heard it. Believe me, you've all heard it. From Gentiles who say, My daughter's married to a Jew, or my grandchildren are being raised this way and that way. Many of the people who have Jewish relations in the family, but themselves are not Jewish, have an identification with the Jewish people. And that's a positive thing that this is not to rationalize or to defend into marriage. I'm just making a statement. Yes, ma'am. I think that the question of who is a Jew is a very important one because there are many of us who are very involved in the Jewish community, uh, belong to synagogues, etc. but there's a whole, especially in Orange County, a huge group of Jews who, if you say, are you Jewish, they will say yes, but they have absolutely no involvement And for me, the question would be, how in the world do we ever seduce them back into becoming active Jews? I love that word, seduce. How do you seduce? How do you bring them back? How do you bring them back? Do you remember in my talk, I made mention of the fact that we live in a voluntaristic society. You can't compel anybody to do anything. We have to compete in the marketplace of ideas and the marketplace of tradition. We have to, what he's doing, what the donors are doing, what you're doing. You are making programs as attractive as they can be. You publicize it as best as you can and you hope that people will come. Much more than that, I'm not sure you can do. You cannot compel people to do this. You can reach out to them. The great debate here is there is a debate among Federation people. Do you allocate resources to reach out to those, like the ones that you're talking about, or do you, in effect, write them off and concentrate on the core and build the core? That, that, that's a debate. I would... The problem is, especially at this time, we are strained in terms of resources. So if there's any, he's, he would turn over in the mausoleum, Lenin, <laughs> if I quoted him. Lenin, just before he died, realized that something was wrong in Russia. Something was wrong in Russia, that the bureaucracy had gotten out of hand. And he wrote an editorial in Pravda, which was really a good editorial. He's not talking about Jews. He's talking about the Russian government and the bureaucracy the title of the editorial was Better Fewer but Better. Mm-hmm. Better Fewer but Better. We've got to make sure that the people in this room and the people who are affiliated are as committed and as knowledgeable as they possibly can be. Because in some ways every Jew must become a shaliach must become an emissary both in behalf of the State of Israel and also reaching out to the people that you are talking about. But remember, in in the competition that exists, you must have the best programs. You must have the best summer camps. You must have the best rabbis. You must have the best educators. And with some luck, you will get some of these people back. He is not considered to be one of the great philosophers. He really isn't. He's not a Wittgenstein. He's not a Martin Buber. But Yogi Berra had it right. (laughs) (laughs) Don't give up. It's not over until it's over. Anyone else? Yes, Fred. You don't uh, put much emphasis on the establishment of Israel, as being a, a point in time, in my lifetime, it seems that once Israel was established, the Jewish community wasn't under that particular uh, blanket of Shah, don't say. You're right. You know? it, it, what he's making reference to is, I, I did make reference to it, but I did not dwell on it. The, remember, I told you Golda Meyerson comes here for $5 million and comes back with $50 million. We Zionize ourselves. The American Jewish community is revitalized by the creation of the State of Israel. It's revitalized once again by the Six-Day War in 1967. In my own family, for example. My oldest child was born in March of 1967. Her name is Natalie. Had she been born after the June War, we would have called her Naomi. No, no, that which is a Hebrew name. So the point is, it does do that. And if you want to dwell on that, there is no one would ever call Leon Uris a great novelist. (laughs) But we know that history is changed by books that are not great. For example, Uncle Tom's Cabin is not a great work of literature. But any student of American history will tell you how it has an important impact on American history. When Lincoln turned to her and said, so you're the little woman that started this war. That's an exaggeration, but not much of an exaggeration. So Leon Uris' book Exodus will also have an impact. What I'm trying to tell you, however, is that you can't build a Jewish community on this anymore. Look, I have a wonderful job. I really do. Some of my colleagues are fruitcakes. But they're essentially nice people. They're good teachers. They're very smart. My college is a very old college. It's a beautiful school. The same man that designed Washington, DC, designed Union College. It's a very, it's a good school. It's a beautiful place. And I, I've loved what I have done. But there's one bad thing about teaching history. You know what it is? Each year, I get one year older, and those damn kids, they're always between 17 and 22. Do you know what it means to pick up the dossier of a student who was born, let's say, in 1993? (laughs) What does that student know about the Second World War? What does that student know about the Holocaust? What you and I viscerally responded to, they don't respond to. What do they know about the Tet Offensive? What do they know about Watergate? Now, in fairness to them, there are things in their generation that they will remember. Like what? That's not fair. What will they remember? What will they remember? They will remember the Twin Towers. They will remember the election of Barack Obama, the first African-American president. They will remember the Iraq War and Madoff. Uh They will remember Madoff too. That's what they will remember. It was only when I began to teach that I finally understood my father. May he rest in peace. My father liked history, and he knew that I liked history. He wanted to talk to me about the Depression. And there I was. (laughs) Hey, pop, turn on the Yankee game. I didn't want to hear So that's, the the point of all of this is, we got a problem here. You can't expect people who are, let us say, between 20, 15 and 40, maybe even 15 and 50, to respond to the same things, to the Six Day War. The most difficult thing for a historian to do is to recreate the ethos of a period. If there were a blackboard here, and I said, I'm going to talk to you at length about the achievement of John Kennedy's administration, would it take me longer than two minutes? Yes. I don't think so. I really don't think so. But would I be doing justice to Camelot? Would I be doing justice to that time, this ha- most handsome of men, this most articulate of men, the beautiful wife? the best and the brightest coming to Washington. I always got a kick out of the fact, everybody thinks that Bill Clinton is a great orator and that Barack Obama is a great orator. They are better orators probably than John Kennedy. But when it came to substance, nobody compared with Kennedy, probably because of Ted Sorensen. But nonetheless, it's not only, what, don't ask what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Has anybody, has Clinton or Obama ever made a statement like this? Here's John Kennedy inviting for the first time all American winners of the Nobel Prize with their spouses. And he gets up and he says, ladies and gentlemen, this is the greatest assemblage of intellect that has ever been to the White House, with the exception of the time that Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Have you ever heard Bill Clinton or Barack Obama say anything like that? And the answer is no. So the point here is we've got to build on what we have. And what we have is what we have always had, that absolutely remarkable Jewish tradition. Remember, we are the people. You ask a student in the, in the day school they're in the yeshiva, what's the Jewish gift to the world? Monotheism. That's not our gift. The greatest gift that we gave to the world was the concept of ethical monotheism. The belief that, the God, that, that, that God is as interested in the relations among people as he is in the relations between people and the divine. Well, I say that we bring to a community we don't take from the community. Huh? We bring to a community and we don't take. I'm not sure what you mean. Well, we don't become indigence. Most of us do not, but there is a group of Jewish poor, and they should never be forgotten. Remember what our tradition says: the people of your own town take precedence. Yes. Could you suggest uh, an author or book that um, you would suggest to kids today for kids to read today? All right. This will be the last question. What book? For kids to read today, I can't tell you. Okay, your students, what are they reading? I'll tell you what I assign in class. It's a golden oldie. It was great when it came out 50 years ago, and it's still good. It's the book As a Driven Leaf by Milton Steinberg. If you haven't read it, please make sure to read it. Thank you all very much.